Dear Father, as we come to the end of these epistles of John, uh, we do praise you and thank you that these were preserved for us to study, to read, to come to an understanding of who you are. We thank you for the Apostle John and his faithfulness to you, and we thank you for your ministry of preserving the Apostles and their words. We thank you for uh, the situation that we get to peek into in this church in the first century AD to see how things were changing towards the end of that century and how we ought to act in relationship with your word. We praise you and we ask that your Holy Spirit guide us in our understanding this morning. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and the blood that he shed for our uh, salvation. We thank you that this seals us eternally and that we are secure in your hands. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. <clears throat> This is our last message in John's epistles proper. However, we will briefly next week look at the seven churches of Revelation because these were also epistles written by John, although the narrator is different. The narrator will be Jesus Christ instead of John himself, though it came from John's pen. So this is our last message in the actual epistles of John, and they have all focused very heavily on the concept of fellowship. Fellowship with God, fellowship with the apostles, fellowship with one another, and the necessity of truth and love in fellowship. And so here we finish on our outline, fellowship in practice. And this morning we will look at the importance of humility in the body of Christ, especially among its leaders, but it is no less important for, the, for each member in the body of Christ. So the main idea this morning is that the pride of Diotrephes stands as an example in history of the dangers that might occur when an immature believer is elevated to a position of authority in the church. A leader who himself is not changed in his orientation from dependence on the flesh to dependence on the spirit will act out of fear rather than the peace of God. And that is the sad picture that we see with Diotrephes. Of course, we hope that he repented of this. We hope that he uh, began to trust in God's word. But uh, we have no record of that. That wasn't the point of why John was writing. He was writing to perhaps gain access back to this local church that had begun to stray under a teacher that was leading them astray. And that is Diotrephes. Now, Diotrephes is a very rare name in uh, church history and in history itself. Both Gaius and Demetrius were like the, uh, well, every Tom, Dick, and Harry. Ga Gaius and Demetrius were very, very popular names. But Diotrephes is a rare name. And we do have in history the family name of Diotrephes in the town of Pergamum. And this was among the Greek aristocracy. So this may have been one man from that family for which this was a family name. And if that is true, then he had a high status in social uh, and high status and social standing in the secular world. And we are confident of his conversion to Christianity, though not of his maturity in the faith. And so we see him mixing the world and status 
with his position here in the church. And that is a dangerous game to play. We are made new creations in Christ. And uh, what it means to lead in the body of Christ is not what it means to lead in the world. And he is using the world's standards rather than God's standards and God's word. And we see how that pride that he is operating on ultimately leads to fear and reactions that come from fear. And those reactions began to cause divisions, separations, and a very dangerous situation for this early local church. Pride is the big issue for Diotrephes. In 3 John 9, he says, I wrote something to the church. Now, this probably refers to one of the letters we've previously studied. 1 John, 2 John, or both of them together. This something is in the singular, but even that singular something can refer to uh, multiple things together. It's a very unique um, sort of pronoun here, an indefinite pronoun. But he wrote this, past tense in the aorist, just a summary idea. There was something that he had written to the church, and that was the point. Because John was the one who wrote it, it should have been received without question. But Diotrephes did not receive this letter from John. And that becomes the main contention here. John, when he is assessing Diotrephes, calls him a lover of leading by control. The NASB says he loves to be first among them, and this is a literal translation of the words, but the sense as it's used in secular writings, because this, is, this word is only used once in the New Testament, in secular writings this is used of dictators, people who love to drag others along by force. And that is what Diotrephes is doing. He is acting as the dictator over this church. He is making the decisions. He is leading rather than letting God lead him. Now the issue here then is that we see Diotrephes continuing to rely on his sin nature. Even though he is in a position in the church where he is able to put people out of the local assembly. We see that he himself has not matured to a level where he is able to lead others. And this is a danger. The base of operations for the sin nature is arrogance. Arrogance leads to fear. Arrogance is not necessarily an outward attitude of being haughty or acting better than others, but an inward, an inward directed uh, perspective. Keeping yourself rather than Christ as your, as your orientation. So here this self-absorption is Diotrephes' mental attitude sin. He has the wrong idea about life. He has the wrong idea about living the Christian life. Instead of being occupied with Christ and having his mind reformed by the reading of God's word, he is occupied with self and self-interest. In 1 John 3, 2 through 3, we see that our sanctification does depend on an occupation with Christ. Now, there are plenty of places in the New Testament to go to see this, especially in the writings of Paul. He was very intrigued by this concept, and he was very, or he stressed the importance of this, but we do want to keep this in the letters of John for now, because this is John's idea that he is presenting to Gaius as an indication of Diotrephes' failures. And had he received this letter, perhaps he could have grown from it.
In 1 John 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So having this focus on the future completion of who we are in Christ, we are uh, sanctified. But he goes a step further and says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The idea here is not necessarily only on the aspect of the future uh, combination of our position with our experience, but with an occupation on Christ himself. And that this is the moment when we will see him is when we will be perfected just as he is. When we live our lives with this occupation on who Christ is, what he has done, and what he will do, our lives begin to change. We have a different motivation for living. And this change had not occurred yet in diatrophies. Self-absorption ultimately leads to self-indulgence. When you are focused on yourself, thinking only of yourself rather than thinking of Christ, ultimately you are going to act out of self-interest rather than out of Christ's interest. Even when you are coming to God and coming to um, him in prayer, if your occupation is on yourself rather than on the person of Christ, your prayers are going to be self-indulgent. They're not going to be in the will of God, but it is going to be in self-will, trying to uh, hopelessly conform God to your will rather than seeking to be conformed to his will. In 1 John 1, 8 through 10, right at the beginning of what John had to write to the church, he says that if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Skipping verse 9 for now and going to verse 10, he says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Remember, this is where we started this series, and we saw that it helps no one, and it helps nothing to lie about your situation. It helps no one and nothing to live outside of reality and to create your own reality. But to try somehow to justify yourself, justify your actions, is a very unchristian thing to do. Verse 9 is the cure for this, of course. Rather than believing a reality that we have created to feel good, we want to believe the reality that Scripture has revealed for us. How we take care of our sin, how we come into fellowship with him and stay in fellowship with him is to agree with him. To agree with him about what reality is concerning sin, concerning your sinfulness. And so if we confess our sins, he says, and that simply means agreement. If we agree with him about sin, the sinfulness of sin and what is sin, then he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. In other words, he is able and will do so, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means even those sins you're not fully aware of or have not yet uncovered. He brings you into fellowship with him. <clears throat> However, as a believer who is out of fellowship fails to do this, fails to get in line with reality and instead decides to create his own, he has to seek rationalization for how he is living. And that requires self-justification. Now, justification is the concept of declaring righteous. When we are justified by the blood of Christ, we are declared righteous. This is a legal term. 
And so self-justification is not adding anything onto your account to make yourself justified or to make yourself righteous, but simply declaring yourself to be. And now God has every right to declare you to be righteous, to declare you justified, because Jesus Christ has paid the price for that, and we receive that by faith. But you have no ability to declare yourself righteous. You are declaring a reality that is false. You are simply creating. And so as arrogance is the base of operation for the sin nature, then the sin nature seeks self-righteousness instead of Christ-righteousness. When this is how we are living and operating, we're not going to scripture. We're not going to Christ for peace. We are going to self for peace. And ultimately, this is an, a peaceless uh, process. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, we see John declare, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who does righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And remember, this has that concept in there that righteousness or the action of righteousness is impossible apart from Christ. Righteousness is only available in and through him. And so if we are to act righteously by his standard, not by our own standard, then we must be living and depending on him. And that means abiding in fellowship. On the other hand, though, the one who does sin is of the devil. Of meaning having his source in or his motivation from the devil. The devil is what is powering this Christian to continue to live in his flesh, if this be a Christian. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. But 1 John 3, or 3, 6 said, no one who abides in him sins. This is the importance of confession because we want to be abiding in him. We want to be agreeing with him about sinfulness so that we might abide in him and stop our sins dead in their tracks rather than continuing to foster and promote this sinfulness. So no one who abides in him sins. That means while we are in fellowship, we are not sinning. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, as we go on this morning, we will add some focus and emphasis onto this concept of seeing him and knowing him because these are fellowship concepts and these are fellowship maturity and growth concepts. And so continuing down this spiral of arrogance, the operation of the sin nature in the believer who should be depending on the new nature, but is now dependent on his sin nature, he has no choice but to become self-deluded, to separate himself from reality, to create a reality of his own. This often presents itself in separatism. Separatism must first begin in the mind. You have to first separate yourself from others, separate yourself from God, and then the actions result. Someone who has separated themselves from the fellowship is often themselves uh, progressed quite far down this unfortunate chain of arrogance towards fear. Because as believers and as Christians, we live in a reality completely separate from those who do not have Christ because there is something new that is true about us. We are seated presently in the heavenlies with Christ. And when this is not our base of operation, our orientation, we are believers living in a new world 
but still desperately clinging to the old, no longer a part of the old, no longer having a place in it, but not receiving the blessing and the gift of living in fellowship with God. And so arrogance depends on living apart from the revelation of God in the scriptures, a separation from truth to create one's own truth. Now this might be a reluctance to read the word because it feels convicting, but it also may be a reluctance to adopt the word. Simply reading it and then saying, oh, that's nice, or explaining it away. Theologizing passages to fit what you have to, uh, what you want to believe, rather than letting it change your theology, change the way you think about God, change the way you think about yourself. This is also separatism. And in 1 John 6-7, through 7, we see that this depends, again, on lying to yourself. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not do the truth. But if we walk in light as he himself is the light, remember that has to do with reading his word, understanding his word, and letting it shine into the darkness of the mind and the life. To live in the light of his word. To live as it reveals truth. It is important that this verse comes just before verse 1 or chapter 1 verse 9 because the reality that we have to agree with is the reality that is revealed in scripture this is the light that we are to walk in and when we do we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins but on the other side of that the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now meaning he has not met action together with his faith. This is where Diotrephes is. We have every reason to believe that he is a believer. In fact, as we'll see, we have every reason to believe he is not a heretic. He is orthodox, but he is not applying that orthodoxy to his actions. He has orthodox doctrine, but heteropraxy, meaning the wrong actions resulting. In verse 10, he says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. This is where Diotrephes should be, but he is not. In verse 11, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is what happens when we create a reality for ourselves. We are not lighting our own path but we are walking off the path of light. We are walking away from truth revealed in scripture and we are stumbling away into darkness. And this should be terrifying and this is terrifying. And this is why arrogance, self-centeredness, self-absorption ultimately leads to fear. Because it is a terrifying thing to be your own God. Because you are incapable. And everything about who you are should tell you that you are incapable of being your own God. You are incapable of saving yourself. You are incapable of supporting the very breath that you're breathing. This is a terrifying reality for a believer who has come to know God, but has ceased to walk with him. And this we call the great lie. This lie that Satan first came to Eve with in the garden. 
offering that she could be like God if she would eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was that first temptation that led to the first sin that led to separation from God to begin with. And it's very well encapsulated in Romans chapter 1. We often look at this and we just look at it as the way a culture progresses down the, the uh, chain of sinfulness. Or sometimes we will look at it as the individual. But the way that Paul has structured his letter in Romans, this is very intimately connected with the Genesis 1 through 3 story. This is speaking of the sinfulness of all mankind. And we see a brief snapshot, a picture of the history of sin. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that they are without excuse. God being an invisible God whom no one has seen is clearly made visible by his activity. Again, this does have a parallel with our mental activity being visible by the actions that result. But that's not the point of Romans 1.20. Here we see that God was clearly visible. Moving into verse 21, we see that they knew God. Well, at what point do we have universal knowledge of God? Only at the beginning of a new civilization. This is speaking of Adam and Eve. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. This was the problem. They had become self-absorbed. They were operating on arrogance. And that was triggered the moment that temptation came. The opportunity to elevate oneself apart from God. They became futile. The word means worthless. We'll see later on that they estimated God to be worthless. There's lots of very clever parallelism here is what the reality that they created for themselves was just an aberration of what God had created. They didn't create anything new. They just destroyed what was. They have a very backwards way of thinking. And so they're, or they became worthless in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. They were walking in the dark now. They were no longer walking in the light because they had abandoned God's word, what he had said about this tree. He said not to eat of it. That is a very specific command. And they decided not to trust his word. And so in verse 22, Paul writes professing, which notice this is simply self-declaring, self-justifying, professing to be wise, not evidencing it, but simply stating that this is a reality. They became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Man was made in the image of God, not to be gods, but to reflect him. And to reflect him, we have to operate in line with the way that he created us. We have to be in fellowship with him to function properly as the humans that he created. In verse 24 then, God gave them over. He let them have their way. 
And sadly, this happens to Christians who continue down this path of self-dependence rather than God-dependence. He will let them have the end of their desires, the end of their hopes. Sometimes that they might repent. Other times that it might lead to a premature death. But here in verse 24, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now this is the point that I want to get to. I think without understanding the theology of what's going on here, it's very hard to translate this. And to try to smooth it out, they have made this definite noun, lie, into an indefinite noun. And made it just any old lie. But the Greek text does not allow for this. It is very specifically a definite lie, meaning that it has something in mind that it is referring to. What is that lie that they exchanged for the truth of God? What was the lie that Eve believed? She believed that she could be her own God. She believed that she did not need God. And so they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Notice Paul, at this point, when he is reflecting on humanity's lack of proper reverence to God, chooses to worship him in the middle of his statement. We should do that as well. We take a moment to worship the Lord. When we look at the history of sin and how sinful man is, and how holy and righteous and perfect God is, and how loving he is, that he would stoop down to save us despite our rebellion, all for his glory. And so this great lie is traced here in a few steps in Romans 1.20. From the creation of the world, when there was universal knowledge of who God is, seeing man as the image of God and animals as the creation of God, we choose instead of the creator, who we know to be all-powerful, omnipotent. We choose something lesser, often because it's less convicting. It's less demanding on our life because we want to be our own God. And when you're following a wooden statue or your paycheck or your career, this allows you to sit in the driver's seat rather than vacating the position and letting God take control. This is a scary thing for someone whose base of operation is the sin nature and arrogance and self-centeredness. So we see the condemnation of man, God allowing him to drive the car, and he drives it straight off a cliff because he drives into darkness, away from the light, refusing God's revelation, refusing God's word. And so the lie is that anyone or anything other than God can be God. He is unique, he is perfect, and he is the only one suited for that position. And though Diotrephes might not understand this, this is what he has done. Rather than allowing God to be God and to speak through his apostles, he has chosen instead to be the arbiter of truth, to decide what truth to accept and what not to accept, and this makes him God. And so the last chain in these events of arrogance is self-deification. Even the Christian can get caught up in these lies. Though appealing to sin 
exchanging an infinite God for a finite God, self, has to result in fear. Imagine spinning out of control in a world that God did not uphold. That would be a terrifying thought, and that is the thought of most evolutionists, most secular humanists, that no one is holding reality in check. No one's holding reality in place. We're just spiraling out of control off in a distant galaxy. This is a terrifying thought. This is a thought that contradicts God's revelation. This is a thought in the dark, not a thought in the light. And now Romans 1.20 shows us how man became sinful man. How man in his state of unconfirmed holiness became confirmed sinful so that we might become redeemed in Christ's righteousness. You see, man before the fall did not have a righteousness of their own, but they weren't sinful either. They needed Christ's righteousness, and this is how they came to have it. But in the church, especially here with Diotrephes, he fails to act in light of this new truth. He fails to fully grasp and understand who he is in Christ. And though he has been retrofitted with the new nature, he never charges the battery. He decides instead to operate as if he's still an old beater. In 1 Corinthians 3.1, we see Paul explaining how this happens in immature believers. He says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. As to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Romans one twenty shows us a picture of mere men. What is a believer doing? who is still acting like this, what is he doing leading a church? That is the question that we should ask. When we see Diotrephes, we shouldn't see him as a condemned heretic who is, who is an unbeliever and unsaved, somehow co-opting a local body. But we see an immature body with an immature head. And he is not subservient to the word of God. When the apostle writes something to him, he does not accept it. He does not receive it. John says he does not accept what we say. This is not a literal translation, but it is a good translation. Literally, Diotrephes does not receive us. And when John uses this us, this plural singular pronoun, most often he is speaking of the apostolic group. He is speaking of the authority which he carries, and he carries together with the other disciples. Diotrephes has refused the apostolic authority that John comes with. And why this is a good translation, despite the fact that it is not a literal one, is what had John offered him but what he had written. And Diotrephes refused what John had written, and so he refused to accept what they said. This parallels with the next verse as well. In each line, we've got a, the Greek sentence, and then below it, the English translation, you can see 
how he has structured it very much the same, where Diotrephes does not receive us. Because of this, because of this foundation that he has in his doctrine, not receiving the whole counsel of God from the apostles, he also does not receive the brothers, which had been commanded to him, as an outward action based on the inward understanding of doctrine and love for God. And so when we see Diotrephes, we see a very presumptuous character, one whose base of operation is arrogance, and one who should not be leading a church, because he has denied the apostolic authority of John. So John says, for this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. <clears throat> Paul warned that this would happen. In fact, he had gathered the leaders of Ephesus in the early 60s AD, just about 10 years before John got there. And he warned them that some false teachers were going to be coming into these churches. And as we'll notice, they're not coming from outside, but they will come from within. Acts 20, verse 25, Paul says, Now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In other words, everything that God had revealed to him as an apostle that was meant to be written down, shared with the believers, garnering this apostolic authority as it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he did not hold anything back from them. The issue isn't receiving just a bit of God's word and we can pick and choose what we like, but it's receiving the whole counsel. And a teacher of the body of Christ has a responsibility to deliver the full counsel of God's word. Not just part of it, not just the New Testament, not just prophecy, not everything except for prophecy. A teacher in the church has the prerogative to teach everything that God delivered to the saints once and for all. And Diotrephes is not doing this. Paul says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Their responsibility is to protect these sheep, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, the way the church was set up and operating at this time in the first century AD was in local house churches where they didn't always have a, an in-home preacher. They would have a group of elders who were responsible for teaching or making sure that the teaching that was coming in was according to the doctrine of the apostles. And so they would receive itinerant preachers who would come through carrying a message from an apostle or come to teach this message. And it was the job of the elders to make sure that this was in accordance with God's word as they shepherd their flock, as they care for the individuals who are hearing these messages. But towards the end of the first century, as the apostolic ministry is ending, as the apostles are dying, and here we've got John as the last apostle, there began to be a new structure in the church where an individual would lead the church as a teacher and there would be elders there still as overseers. And this is probably the dynamic that we have between Diotrephes and Gaius. 
where Diotrephes is seeking to elevate himself over the church as the teacher. And he and Gaius were perhaps previously on a, on a parallel level as elders. But Diotrephes has no business being an elder, let alone a teacher. But notice the same issue happens in the Gospels with the Pharisees where these Pharisees were so unaware of God's law and the meaning of God's law, they had made their own law up. They were operating on that. And when Jesus confronts them with their lack of understanding, he says, are you the teachers of Israel? Really? You guys are the ones teaching others. We could say the same thing when we look here at Diotrephes. Really, do you truly understand God's word because you're not acting like it? Paul continues in Acts 20, in the town of Miletus, and he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among yourselves men will arise. What did John say in 1 John 2.19? That men went out claiming to be from the apostolic group. Men went out claiming to have the authority from within the group. They had abandoned orthodoxy and were going out and teaching heterodoxy, heresy. These men will arise speaking perverse things in order to draw away the disciples after them. Notice that evangelists go to the unsaved world and try to seek an ear among unbelievers so that they can share with them who Christ is, what he has done for them, the salvation that he has purchased on behalf of them. These heretics seek an ear among the disciples. Among those who are saved, they want to teach them something different. They want to co-opt what God has done in the church as the head of this church and become the head of something that God has created. To once again, just like man did in the garden, destroy what God has created. And they will lead many individuals away. They cannot destroy the church of God, but they can destroy the walk of believers as these believers choose to follow after them. That is what these overseers are responsible for caring for these flocks, caring for them that they are not introduced to heresies, but that they receive the solid food of God's word. Therefore, be on alert, he says, remembering, recalling, bringing back to mind something that had already been known. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish admonish each one of you with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. A dependence on God, specifically on his word. This is what is able to build us up into maturity. This is what is able to sanctify us. This was our memory verse through February. I heard someone quote it to me over the phone yesterday, and it was a very happy moment for me, that people are memorizing God's word. Because as a shepherd of this flock, this is my hope and this is my goal. That I can always point you to God's word. And that God's word is going to ring true in your heart. And this is often a prayer that I pray in the morning before giving this message. Lord, let me disappear and that you become the message. Let your word ring through, and anything that I add to it in the feebleness of my own mind, let it fall on deaf ears. Because it is not anything that I have to say, 
that is of any importance, but only as the word of God is revealed. And so in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writing to a very young, but a very mature pastor in the church of Ephesus says, all scripture is inspired by God. This is what Diotrephes did not understand. All scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. These can be uncomfortable for someone who is based in arrogance. An arrogant person does not like receiving teaching from someone else. They do not like receiving reproof or correction or training. But just like Hebrews tells us about the discipline of the Father, it might seem uncomfortable at first, but we will understand joy through it. And this is what the believer has, that as we are corrected from darkness, we better understand the light. As he pulls us away from the edge, as we dangle on the, on the uh, edge of heresy, and he says, no, this is truth. He brings us out of self-delusion. This is a rescue operation, rescuing the mind of the believer that has been tainted by the world so that it might be renewed and reformed in the righteousness of Christ, so that we might have the mind of Christ in the word of God. So that the man of God might be adequate and equipped for every good work. Diotrephes was not adequate, and he was not equipped for what he was doing. So John says, if I come, this is a third class conditional, which means it's possible with no reference to a plan that he has to come, but also no doubt that he is able to come. It is simply a, I may have to come because of this situation. So if John does come, he says, I will call attention to his deeds, which he has done. This calling attention has the literal meaning of bringing to mind. Same idea of remembrance. The sense here is to raise the issue in the church. This man is not qualified for the position that he has, not because of any lack of degrees or ordination, but simply because his actions are not according to truth. What is revealed is of no consequence to him. He acts as if he is an unbeliever because he is still basing his actions in the sin nature. This is the work that he does, the deeds that he does. The first that he makes the capstone here, or the headstone, is that he is unjustly accusing us. And again, this us would probably refer back to the apostles. Diotrephes does not receive or submit himself to the authority of the apostolic word. He is pratting or disparaging. The text explicitly says that he is using wicked or evil words, words that have their source and origin not in God, but in Satan. He is slandering. He is telling lies about John. When we looked a few months back at Cain's spiral down this egoism or arrogance, we saw that he followed a very similar path that Diotrephes is following. A brother, and remember this is supposed to surprise us. We're not surprised if the world hates us, but friendly fire 
among brothers in the church. This should surprise us because we have a new nature. We should not be walking as the world walks. So 1 John 3.11, John wrote, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Diotrephes is not extending love towards John as a brother. He is also not receiving the authority. John uses this example of Cain, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, acting with wicked deeds. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Why is Diotrephes slandering John? Because John has every right to introduce the apostolic word to Diotrephes' congregation. John is doing what God has called him to do, and Diotrephes is not. John's word is a threat to Diotrephes' self-gained authority. John is a threat to Diotrephes' self-reality. So John says that Diotrephes is also not satisfied just to slander John. He himself also does not receive the brethren. So not only is he saying, John, you stay out of here, but then acting properly, at least within his local body, he is also acting inappropriately in the local body. He is acting unloving. Now notice here, I have underlined himself, and it's in red. This is an emphatic pronoun. He himself does not receive the brethren. Even he alone is not doing this. And we have decent reason to believe that Diotrephes may have been the owner of the home church that they are in. This is how we would have this upper hand or authority to take control and to put people out of the local church as an elder. He could say, you're not welcome in my personal home. And so he himself does not receive the brethren either, though he opens the home to those who he is able to control or to lead by force. He refuses those who come with a different authority, the authority of God through the apostles. Remember when I said, if anything is explained to you as emphatic, ask emphatic for what reason? What is it emphasizing? It is emphasizing here the contrast between Gaius and Diotrephes, because John is going to make a request of, of Gaius, and he wants him to continue to act faithfully, not as Diotrephes is doing. So he says, I was glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that was an emphatic pronoun, that is how you are walking in truth, again emphatic, in order to contrast him with Diotrephes. We have his actions as well contrasted. Beloved, you are acting faithfully. That word faithful, or it is better translated perhaps faithful deeds, you are doing faithful deeds, is emphasized in the text by a process called fronting, where it's drawn to the beginning of the sentence, so that that receives the emphasis of the tone. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren. Everything that Gaius is doing to serve the body of Christ, he is doing faithfully to God, not selfishly, and especially when they are strangers. Remember this importance of impersonal love. Even though he does not know them, even though he has nothing to gain from them, 
he is extending the love of Christ to them in hospitality. And they have testified to your love, again, emphatic, before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. <clears throat> not only is Diotrephes not extending this hospitality himself, acting poorly himself, but he is forbaying those who desire to act hospitably towards these strangers. Those individuals who are in his local church, he is not allowing them to receive these emissaries from John. He is a very bad leader. And the threat which bends them into compliance is that he would put them out of the church. They would no longer enjoy the local assembly. And this would be a terrifying thing because the Roman world at this point is aiming its guns towards the church. This would be a believer kicked out the door, left to fend for himself without a local body. We've talked a bit in the last few weeks about the importance of a local church body. Many of these commands to love one another, to serve one another, these require being in a body of fellowship. That's why separatism is dangerous for Christians. And the separatism here that this church is facing is forced separatism, where they are going to be kicked out of their local body if they act faithfully towards God. That's quite backwards, isn't it? Dare I say again, Diotrephes has no business leading this church. Oops. So why is John telling Gaius about Diotrephes? If they're in the same church, doesn't it beg the question, wouldn't Gaius already know? What's the point? Why does he go into any detail at all about the activity that Gaius is doing or that Diotrephes is doing? Gaius might read this letter and say, yeah, I know. Why are you telling me? This has led some to believe that Gaius might be the leader of a different church and that John is trying to make headway in Gaius's church. But that doesn't solve the problem that is present here in this local church. John is trying to enter this local church to keep it doctrinally sound and obedient to God's word. So if they are from the same home church, doesn't Gaius already know this situation? John is emphasizing here the difference between Diotrephes' evil actions with Gaius' good actions. That's why he has to explain what Diotrephes is doing. For the purpose of encouraging Gaius to continue. But also John is assuring Gaius that he is cognizant of the situation fully. Because John has sent Demetrius to his front door in hopes that Gaius will welcome him in. This is a dangerous situation for Gaius, and John is fully aware what he is asking him to do. Because Diotrephes will likely try to put Gaius out of the church for doing this. But Gaius has already been defying Diotrephes. He has already been extending love to the brothers and to strangers. John is encouraging him, hoping that he will do the same. And he also encourages him with the words that he hopes to come and set the situation straight. So John is assuring Gaius that he is cognizant of the situation fully and equally aware of the danger that Gaius faces in his home church for his faithful actions of hosting John's emissaries. Thirdly, John is writing to correct the record. 
since Diotrephes' slander of John has been malicious and false, John is revealing Diotrephes' discreditable character. When you look at what John says Diotrephes is doing with the evidence that he is doing it, then the slander that Diotrephes is hurling towards John becomes a moot point. So there's three reasons why John is telling Gaius what Gaius probably already knows, to contrast their actions, to show him that he is aware of the situation, and to correct the slander that has been hurled against him. And he has to do this because he is an apostle. His reputation is tied with the reputation of Scripture and God's Word. He cannot let this slide. But notice, John does not take issue with Diotrephes' doctrine, but rather the application of that doctrine. The refusal to take on more doctrine. He has the basics of the gospel. Perhaps he is even faithful in continuing to share that gospel. But he is not growing in the full counsel of God's word, and this is making him an immature believer who is causing others to be unfaithful. John does not call Diotrephes an antichrist in this letter, and it is the only letter in which John does not use this term. It is a word which has used in both preceding epistles, nor does Diotrephes fit John's description of an antichrist, nor does John call for his removal. Notice John is going to come and set the situation straight himself, but he doesn't tell Gaius, get this guy out of there, he is an antichrist. Take control of your church as an elder. He does not say this. He is going to come and set the issue straight, and we are going to see in the last verse he hopes to do this speaking face to face. He is going to come and hopefully set the doctrine straight. Diotrephes was a spiritually immature believer in a position of leadership. He was not an innovator of new truths, but rather a critic of the truths that he was presented with. That is the issue here. It's not the same issue that we have seen everywhere else in John's letters. It is a different issue. And that is why this is an important book for the canon of Scripture. Because we don't get to pick and choose what we receive from God's Word. We don't get to pick and choose what applies to us and what makes us uncomfortable that we would rather not have. It is all applicable. It is all important. And so we move to John's exhortation here. He says, Beloved, speaking to Gaius, do not imitate what is evil. This is the danger that Gaius might shift from his imitation of what is good to imitating what is evil. This temptation to conform for ease, for the continued expression of fellowship outwardly, despite the fact that inward fellowship has already been broken this is the only or one of two imperatives in this book. Remember, John very sparingly uses imperatives, direct commands, but he says, do not imitate what is evil. We have what is called ellipses here, where the verb is repeated but not stated, but imitate what is good. This is, once again, a very Johannine way of speaking. This is a black and white statement. Do not do those evil deeds that Diotrephes is doing, but do what is good. 
This is very much a New Testament doctrine. Hebrews 13, 7. Those Hebrews who were tempted to abandon the practice of doctrine, the practice of true doctrine, for comfort, that they might be accepted by the Jews who still practice uh, Second Temple Judaism. They are tempted to abandon acting properly. And the writer of Hebrews tells them to remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their contact, uh, conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate good, sound, solid leaders who are imitating Christ, not who are making it up for themselves as they go. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul writes, you also became imitators of us, an apostolic we here. You became imitators of the apostles and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul states it to the Corinthians as a command. Be imitators of me, the apostle Paul, just as I also am of Christ. Paul is imitating Christ. We can see Paul. We cannot see the person of Christ today. The imitation of the apostles puts us in orthopraxy, proper action, coming from orthodoxy, proper doctrine. The apostles were specifically set aside for this very purpose. John 17, we often read as simply to the whole body of the church, but the great bulk of this chapter has to do specifically with the apostles. At the end, it is applied to us, but there are some issues here which speak specifically to the ministry and purpose of the apostles. And this is what Diotrephes is lacking in his doctrine. Jesus, while praying, to God says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Perfect tense, past tense, with, or in the past with present result. They were yours and you gave them to me. They were believers and God set them aside as disciples for Christ. They have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. These apostles received the words of Christ and understood their significance and importance as Jesus is the emissary of God who came with God's message. They received it as the words of God. They received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. That means they understood the authority chain. They understood why this word could not pass away. I asked on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. <clears throat> I am no longer in the world. Remember, this was the night before he was crucified, he prayed this. And yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. What is this prayer? This prayer 
is a prayer to God that he would guard the apostles. The apostles are going to have a role to play in the establishment of the New Testament, in the establishment of the churches, and it is going to require that they are trustworthy. Now, these apostles will still have a sin nature. They will be capable of sinning. But the Holy Spirit is going to come alongside them and inspire them as they write God's words. God, or Jesus, is praying to God that he preserve them for this purpose. This is a prayer for divine protection. Jesus goes on in verse 12, which I don't have here, to say that while he was on earth, he did this. Save for the one, Judas, because Judas was never a believer. We see four chapters earlier in chapter 13, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, he says that all of them are already clean. They just need cleansing, except for one who was not clean. He did not receive the cleansing or the righteousness of Christ. But in verse 13, he says, Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy full in themselves. That was John's purpose for writing. I have given them your word. This was given to the apostles that they would give to us. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And the point, they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. Sanctify them, set them aside, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Jesus came bearing the authority of God to preach his word, and the apostles go out into the world with the authority of Christ to preach his word. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also be sanctified in truth. Now this is how we know explicitly that he is speaking of the apostles and not all believers, because he makes a contrast here. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these referring to the ones that he has been talking about up until now, but for those also who believe in me through their words. Now you have been drawn into this context. Now this is about you. Up until this point, this has been talking about the apostles, God's divine protection of them, because they have a very specific purpose to fulfill. This is what Diotrephes has refused. They or That they may be may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Any believer in the first century who did not have fellowship with these apostles and the word that they spoke did not have fellowship with God. They were not in fellowship. Diotrephes was a leader who lived in a continual state of being out of fellowship with God. So as he tells Gaius not to imitate this one who is so or such a poor example or pattern, he says the one who does good, the one who does good things, he is of God. That means his source is in God. We can only do righteousness through God's righteousness. We, excuse me, have none of our own to offer. But the one who does evil has not seen God. This does not mean that this person who does evil things has never been saved. 
has never been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. This means that he is not acting like it. He has not understood. He has not grown. He has not matured in his faith. Just as John 14, we see Philip saying to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. We want to see God. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Remember, one of the conditions of being an apostle was that they saw the resurrected Christ, that they saw, that they understood. First John chapter 1, we see John explaining, not by saying, I'm an apostle, listen to me, but showing us his credentials. And notice the importance, the significance on seeing here. Because just like Philip, we want to see God. And how do we do that? We can't look on the face of the physical incarnate Christ today. We can't even look on the face of these apostles today. But we can look at Christ revealed in their words. And we can act based on that. We can think based on the mind of Christ revealed in his word. 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and that's the point. Reading the New Testament, reading these words of the apostles brings us into fellowship with them as we agree with them, and they are in fellowship with God because they agree with him. We know that we are in fellowship with him when we receive his word because he has preserved them and protected them for this very purpose. And every word that was written by them that is, cons uh, that is preserved in scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit for our edification. And we have a responsibility to read it, believe it, and live it. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. That is the goal, is it not? And so John has sent Demetrius carrying this letter to the very porch of Gaius, asking that he receive Gaius into his house despite the danger that it presents him in his local fellowship with Diotrephes, who is acting as a dictator. And he does so by commending Demetrius to, God, or to Gaius. He says, Demetrius has received a good testimony. He is trustworthy. You can trust taking him in. He is not going to soil your reputation. He is not going to make you eat crow, in other words. If you accept this man into your home, you have accepted a faithful man with a faithful word into your home. And John gives a three-part testimony. Let everything be confirmed on the word of two or three witnesses. John presents three witnesses. And the first one's a big one. Everyone. This is probably the testimony that Paul himself received for Demetrius. Paul apparently had not met one who had bad things to say about Demetrius. In his fellowship in the local body, he acted faithfully, and people recognized this. They saw it. But more importantly than the testimony of one's fellow brothers is the truth itself. 
Now, this does not mean that John received divine revelation that Demetrius was a perfect human being, but rather Demetrius' actions corresponded with truth. What had been revealed, Demetrius was faithful to do. He was faithful to live in light of this truth, unlike Diotrephes. And finally, Paul adds his own testimony, using again that apostolic we. This comes with authority. And we know that John's testimony is true because John is of the apostolic group. This was the same way he ended the Gospel of John. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things. The previous verse had spoken of the one whom Jesus loved, John. He wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Notice his use of the apostolic we here while referring to himself in the third person. It is his authority as an apostle. In John 13, 20, Jesus had told these apostles, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. John has sent Demetrius. He who receives Demetrius from John's testimony of Demetrius receives John. He who receives John receives Christ. He who receives Christ receives God. Remember previously he had told them to, uh, to treat them in a way worthy of God. This is what it means. In John 20, verse 19, speaking of his apostleship, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where his disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. This was the last statement that Jesus made to them, indicating their task, their mission, their job as, a, as the apostles. They saw the resurrected Christ. They saw him in his resurrection body, and he says, go and tell them. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit that, is, that guides them along as they write the words of God, that inspires them and preserves that word. In John 14, 25, Jesus had promised them, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, while Jesus was here and living among them. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Again, a promise given to the apostles. They would be guided by this Holy Spirit that they just received in John chapter 20. And so Jesus says to them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. What did Diotrephes lack but peace? Diotrephes, we can see in his actions, had no peace about his authority, had no peace about his authority in the local church. He had to take it by force because he didn't deserve it. He wasn't responsible with it. 
he didn't have the right motivation for it. He was his own God in his mind. He had no peace because he was operating out of fear, operating out of arrogance. But Jesus gives his believers peace in the revealed word of God, because our authority is him and he is trustworthy. And so John ends his letter very quickly here with the desire of face-to-face -face fellowship with these believers. This would be a huge encouragement to Gaius. Gaius who is living and continuing faithfully in this church that is quickly headed off the rails because of a bad leader. John says, I had many things to write to you, but I hope to see you shortly and we will speak. Rather than writing, he wants to communicate face to face. He wants to share that fellowship of coming together as the body of Christ. It is much better than just writing letters to one another or seeing each other on Facebook or email. It is a much better thing to come together as the body of Christ. And this fellowship that John shared with them in faith, he wants to share with them physically, in person. Notice this is also the goal of our sanctification and our glorification with Christ, to be present and together with him. Right now we have his written word, and it is a wonderful thing. But how much better will it be when we see him face to face and we speak with him face to face? John is here reflecting that knowledge. It is much better to be in one another's presence, to speak face to face. And so John, just as Christ left him with the peace of his word, John tells Gaius here, peace be to you. This letter did not begin with a benediction as some letters do and as second John did. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you, or will be with you. But this comes at the very end, leading on a high note. Peace be to you. Peace being the opposite of fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Think of the contrast here between Gaius and Diotrephes. One has love working through, impersonal love becoming personal love. The other has fear, self-love, arrogance. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The syntax of this last sentence draws, draws these two clauses together as closely as the Greek language permits, using a, a, a feature of the language called a syndeton meaning that these are so closely related that they are the same sentence, but because of the rules of grammar, they have to occupy their own clauses. No one has seen God at any time. The very same thought on this foundation is that if we love one another, God abides in us. Our fellowship with God, his love is perfected in us. This is what it means to see God, is to see him in his word as he has revealed himself to believe it, to live it, to obey it. Remember, this is what it means to walk by means of the Spirit, to be filled with God's Word. 
And the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, but such things we see no trace of in Diotrephes' leadership. But we do in Gaius' humble service. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We do live by the Spirit. We have been made alive. The Spirit made us alive together in Christ the moment we believed. So let us also walk by means of the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, or envying one another. Diotrephes was not walking by the Spirit that had made him alive. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The very last words here of John, the friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Up until now, he has used brothers to talk about one's fellow believers. Brothers is an impersonal term. Whether or not he knows them, they are brothers. But these are probably personal friends of Gaius, those who knew Gaius in John's local fellowship. They had extended their greetings and their welcome to Gaius. And Gaius is then told by John to greet the friends by name, those who knew John. This phrase, by name, means individually. This might have something to say about the idea of a small local fellowship rather than a big megachurch. To know one another by name, this is where personal love is able to be practiced. Personal love that stands on the foundation of impersonal love, Christ's impersonal love of us, our impersonal love of all the brothers, that as we come to know one another, we are endeared to one another, and our impersonal love adds to it personal love. This again happened with the disciples. As the impersonal love of Christ moved into personal love, and as servants, they became friends because they obeyed Christ, because they, through the power of God working through them, were obedient to God's word. You are my friends if you do what I command you, Jesus says. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. The main idea this morning, the pride of Diotrephes, stands as an example in history of the dangers that might occur when an immature believer is elevated to a position of authority in the church. A leader who himself is not changed in his orientation from dependence on the flesh to dependence on the spirit will act out of fear rather than the peace of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for these wonderful and deep letters. Though they are brief, they carry with them quite a weight. We thank you that we have had this opportunity to study these letters. We thank you for the opportunity and the ability to understand them. We pray that the Holy Spirit would apply these doctrines to our lives, that we would call to remembrance these words as applicable situations arise in our lives, that we would be faithful to consider all things that vie for authority in our lives based on the authority of Scripture. We pray that we would be faithful to you, and we thank you for the gift of salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you in the name of your Son. Amen.